This is episode 177 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we are kickstarting a special four-part series that I title Holistic Approach to Making Food with Peace and Body. Today, we start with the mental body, and we have a special guest to lead us through the session, Christina Island. Stay tuned. My name is Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist, and my first diet was at 14 years old, and my last one, 38 years old. Here's what I now know. It's not about what we eat, or how we eat, or when we eat. It's about why we urge to eat. And the longer we hold on to the idea that tinness will bring us happiness and confidence, the further we get from that exact goal. The solution? Going beyond the food, mindset over strategy, ditching dieting, eating intuitively, and learning to accept our body as is today without having to lose anything. So how do we make peace with food in our body? As a top 25 alternative health podcast in the world, this is the Going to Beyond the Food Show. Ladies, welcome back. Stephanie Dozier here, and today we're kickstarting this new series called Holistic Health. Very exciting because holistic health, or the holistic approach to making peace with food and your body, is the foundation of the going to beyond the food method. It's what our approach, our programs are built around. That's what healed me, and that's what healed the current and the past student in all of our program. And that is very unique in the approach to food and body. So let's start with understanding what is holistic health, because many of you are probably heard of it, but never really dug into it. And that's why I'm bringing this up on the podcast, because to me, that's the key that's going to unlock this freedom and this peace that we're all seeking. So holistic health is this ancient system of healthcare that dates back thousands of years ago and was present in very old cultures such as Chinese culture or Indian culture. We have written document of Yurvedic medicine, which is a branch of holistic health that date back more than 3,500 years ago. Back in those days, there was no science, there was no blood test, there was no x-ray. So the doctor of the time had to be focused on something else to help their patient. And that's what holistic health is, is looking at the different part of the human being, because we are a complex being, the human species, in which we really have four bodies within our own shell that we all see, right? The shell is called the physical body. That's one part of us. Then we have the mental body, that mind piece that house all of our thinking, our planning, our thoughts, right? What really makes us different and what allowed us to become this evolved species that we are. So that's the second body, the mental body. And then we have the emotional body. And again, that's to a certain degree unique to the human species, that emotion, right? The 
feelings that we have that drives a lot of the action and the decision that we take on a day-to-day basis. And finally, we have the spiritual body, this untouchable, subtle energy connection to higher power, to religion, for those who believe in religion or in God. This connection that leaves our body when we die, you know, that flame, that that soul part of ourselves. So holistic health is based on understanding the complexity of the human being in those four layers and bringing balance to those four layers of the human body, the human species, as a way of bringing health. Because the truth is, health is a state of balance, a state of homeostasis. And when we have symptom, could be high blood pressure, could be urge of eating, could be binging, could be body shaming, it is in response to deeper events in yourself that it is aiming from your emotional body, your mental body, or your spiritual body. Something is driving the behavior. That's why we call going beyond the food, right? Going as to why we urge to do those actions that are so destructive to us and where we want to go. So holistic health look at the complexity and the different layer that drives the behavior, drives the disease, and create the symptom, this what we call in my world, this body message, this communication through urges, through pain, through symptoms to let us know that something deeper is not going well. So holistic health is about empowerment versus allopathic medicine, which is the conventional modern medicine, which is about taking control and suppressing the symptom. Holistic health is about empowering you to take responsibility for your health, which is the centric desire of holistic health. Because again, back in the days, they didn't have the suppressing mechanisms such as medication or surgery, they needed to prevent disease. Because once the human or the body was sick, it was very difficult to revert. So the primary goal of holistic health is prevention. It's this state of homeostasis in balance. Now, I am trained in holistic health. That's my background. I couple that with functional medicine, which says, let's look at the root cause within the four bodies to help determine what we need to do to bring this person, this body into a state of health. And that's how we approach the going to beyond the food method, right? We teach our student intellectual knowledge around health, around the four layer of the human body, how to balance the mental body, the emotional body, tips, tricks, techniques, tools, strategy, so they can empower themselves to be in a state of balance to then reduce the body messages, the urges, the self-destructive thought, the negative thoughts, and be able to be in the state of health and happiness. And that's a very difficult concept to explain on a website 
or in a five minute conversation. So I thought the best way for me to help you comprehend where we come from and why the going to beyond the food method is different and why it's so freaking effective and why it affects well beyond just food, but whole spectrum of your life, because we're going to that deep layer of healing. And to do that, what we're going to do over the next four episodes, we're going to deep dive into one body. Today, we're going to talk about the mental body. And I'm bringing an expert in the particular body to really deep dive and show you how this body interacts with food and body thoughts and body shaming. I hope this is going to serve you and empower you to really focus on what is causing your not being at peace with food and your body. So today our guest is Christina Highland, and you will see in the interview, she's an old friend of mine, and I'm very excited to bring her forward to you. She's collaborated with me on many programs with me and taught different components of my past program, but her training as a registered social worker, she's also on her way to get a PhD in social work with relation to food. You'll see she'll talk about that very interesting research. She's also a holistic nutritionist, and she's a life process therapist and a Reiki master. The girl is certified and very educated in the realm of mental body and mental health. She practices online and also in a clinic, and you can seek to work with her if you want. You'll see in the show notes, she offers a 30-minute consultation. So if there's a connection through the podcast with her, feel free to go to the show notes, stephaniedozi.com slash 177, and then you'll see her contact information there. So ladies, are you ready to start diving into holistic approach to food and body? If so, let's do this. Hi, Christina. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the show. I want to share with my listener, first of all, the fact that we've known each other for almost, we think seven years, six or seven years (laughs) in 2012. We have a long journey together. We've collaborated before, and Christina has continued to evolve in her own educational journey, and I'm so happy to have her back on the podcast today to share where her research and her work has led her, but we click right away seven years ago. So I'm going to ask you to tell people your journey and how we came across and What do you do now? Like, let's talk about you and how you got to be here today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I, that when you said how I've evolved, the first thing that I've always been thinking about with you recently when you asked me to be on was just how much your evolution and this mission you have around undieting just really spoke to me. And I just feel like it's such a privilege to be here. So thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, so I feel like there's so much to share today, and I'm sure we'll get to lots of the content. But to give you a bit of a background, as you mentioned, yes, I'm a social worker. (laughs) I've been practicing for a while now as well as a nutritionist. And although these roles have kind of 
look different over the years. They've certainly evolved. My work started out in more community-based settings, so like grassroots organizations. And I worked primarily with street-involved and homeless youth, as well as pregnant and parenting teens. And quite honestly, Stephanie, they truly, I think, taught me more than any of the schooling or mentors or any settings could ever have taught me. They held like such a wisdom and they still, I work with some of these youth and just their ability to develop their own unique sort of survival means. I mean, their resiliency was presented to me in virtually like every daily interaction that I witnessed them in. As you can Mm -hmm. certainly imagine, many of them were dealing with incredible suffering, being that they were homeless, many of them street involved and, you know, single mothers and families. So they faced a lot of systemic trauma. And by that, I mean facing poverty, homophobia, sexism, racism, classism, and also just facing their own discrimination based off of their age and their life situation. So societal messaging, like you'll never get anywhere in life. You're just a street kid. And those sorts of prejudices was very much so dominant in their lives. And so you can imagine with that also the fact that with their poverty, accessing food was virtually, for many of them, nearly impossible. Mm. Many of them relied on charity-based resources like food banks, which I think a lot of people have this misconception that food banks are a solution when they've never really been something that solved hunger. I mean, they're necessary. Certainly they're necessary given sort of the state of our society, but a lot of the foods they offered in these spaces were typically substantial, like in quantity or quality and all that. And many of them had severe chronic health issues because of their living conditions like diabetes, Crohn's. So some of the foods weren't the best or most optimal for their health. So yeah, a lot of these youth were forced to decide, do I pay for rent this month or do I pay for food? Do I pay for my children's food or do I pay for my own? So their relationship with food was really complex. And I think this was just such a major eye-opening experience for me, especially coming from, you know, a middle-class white family. I never really personally had to question when or where my food would be. I never had that stressor of that very basic human need being kind of out of reach. Mm-hmm. So this work, like in particularly, was so profound for me. And I think looking back, I think I came with it with a certain lens being that I came from an intergenerational history, a family history of eating disorders and poverty and also pretty severe mental health intergenerationally, like addictions and other chronic mental health conditions. So, you know, witnessing family members struggle very early on in my life, I really had this deeper understanding that it was more than just the food. And I think this is where you and I really connect because it has always been look beyond the food, right? (laughs) Yep. And it has evolved for me as well, but it's always been centric to all layers of the human body, right? So in your philosophy, 
why do individual develop eating problems? You know, it's often, I used the term eating disorders earlier on in this podcast, but I tend to try to use it for context purposes. Ever since reading this woman named Becky Thompson, her work on eating problems amongst impoverished women, women who were racially discriminated against and so forth, she kind of came up with this other term. She used the term eating problems. And I think it really is more something that I connect with. And the reason being is that it's still a problem, our relationship with food, that if it's that tumultuous and it's causing that degree of suffering, it's still a problem. But her use of the word problem really seeks to depathologize, taking out the focus on the person being, quote unquote, like the defect in their biochemistry, although of course that certainly at times plays a role, but she saw, which I thought was very revolutionary, she saw eating problems as sort of sane responses to insane circumstances. So these youth facing all of these traumas, violence in the streets, domestic home abuse, substance use, all of these very traumatic experiences, they were using their eating problems were sort of these external manifestations of trying to cope with these traumas. So I appreciate her kind of perspective. And that's sort of my lens of what an eating disorder means to me is just this sort of external behaviors. That's sort of what typical health professionals will look at. But really beyond that, it's a deeper sense of pain or disconnection to self. Mm -hmm. And a response to coping with trauma, trauma experience. And trauma doesn't have to be, I think that term trauma can get confused sometimes because we often think of just sexual abuse or violence, but it can also be more spirit trauma. So feeling like one doesn't belong in this world or feeling disconnected to one's meaning or purpose in life or being bullied or, you know, that can be very many experiences, ones that leave us feeling very disconnected to ourselves. And I want to ask about trauma, because for many women listening, there's a portion that have had the trauma you explain. But what I also see in practice, and I'd love your opinion on that is self imposed trauma, through Mm -hmm. body shaming, body hatred, and the whole dieting cycle. Yes. And, and that's, again, sort of like when I said systemic trauma. So when I talked about like homophobia, racism, there's also fat phobia, right? Mm-hmm. There's weight-based discrimination and there's this dieting culture. So yes, we can internalize the systemic forms of trauma and really that critic, that sort of mind chatter that develops from that in our own self can then become a way of battling ourself which definitely I really get into when I start to talk about how we heal mm-hmm. with our relationship with food. It's definitely something for my own self as well, being that I grew up kind of in the same society, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of also a misconception that people have with street youth is, you know, these youth aren't immune to the societal 
body shaming. They're not immune to diet culture. They're not immune to these weight loss imaging and messaging that we get, this thin privilege that we hear about. They're not immune to that either. And so that's why I kind of challenge the dominant view of eating disorders because people often see it as like a middle to upper class white able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, female issue when the research shows otherwise, that many of us struggle with our relationship with food. And yet, you know, some might have more access to getting such a diagnosis and therefore the treatment that they need, but others might just not be recognized or they might not see in themselves, like you said, like it's a problem. It might just be so normalized. (laughs) The discourse has been internalized and therefore feels as if it's their own self. Absolutely. I want to get into the whole disconnection to self Mm -hmm. principle, which underlies your entire philosophy, which is where we meet again. So what does it mean what you said that eating problems are in part created from trauma and disconnection to self? Can you elaborate on that? More? Yeah, and kind of interweaves with my own story. I started in this workplace. I think the youth were kind of like a mirror to myself. I too had been through like earlier trauma and struggled with my relationship with food. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, you know, I really need to work through this myself. And in that way, I started researching about different training for eating disorders and. Anyways, I came across this process. It's called the Life Process Transformation, and it was developed by a woman named Viola Fedor. And I looked up her site and came across a practitioner that was working in my area. Her name is Amy Smith and connected with her. And the philosophies that they presented to me just became the biggest shifts trajectory for me in my life. It really opened my eyes to the need to not just heal your relationship with food. That's sort of what we say, but really what we're meaning is healing our relationship with self. So definitely when we're thinking about healing, healing the struggle, because it it can be very tormenting for many people. Many of your listeners, I'm sure, would agree that It's this daunting daily kind of mind chatter that we're struggling with when it comes to food and body and self, right? There's all this, we kind of call it the false self, but be it called the ego, the critic, the second self, whatever you want to call it, the shadow self, as some people call it. All of this is is not necessarily new information, but I think it's quite profound in that this is not really truly who you are the radio that's playing constantly in your mind is not a reflection of you deeply within you there's a deeper essence of yourself that is there and viola often said which i thought was pretty profound she says you don't need fixing we truly just need freeing we need to free our true self Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. And it requires self-awareness. It requires, awareness requires presence. And presence requires really feeling. 
And so much are we exposed to in the society of being in some form of autopilot, going, 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 doing, doing. And, you know, it's coping. It's the same as kind of food in that way. Like it's a form of trying to live above and beyond our feelings. And yet it can develop into kind of this chronic low-grade anxiety or stress that until we kind of go to bed at night and we finally have a break, we don't truly process. And oftentimes that's why we have trouble sleeping is that it all comes up. It's like that plastic ball under the water. We try to hold it down all day long and and you know our arms get tired and then that ball just shoots out or mm-hmm. when we hit the arm and then it'll shoot out and so that's why i see a lot of people talking about like you know i don't know what happened but i just blew up or you know i try to go to sleep but all these things come up for me and it's this autopilot that is actually quite glorified in our society as well like the doing and when i first met Amy, with these concepts, I had a really hard time wrapping my more intellectual brain (laughs) around this idea of doing the opposite being. What did this being mean? And I was so confused. How do we know ourselves? Like, how do we develop this connection to ourselves when we've been so trained and conditioned so early on in our life to avoid our feelings and And we've been trained to look outside of ourselves as our reflection of who we are. So through our grades, through our successes, through our friendships, through relationships, through things of the body image, yes, that was sort of the conditioning many of us experienced growing up. You think when I see my little niece, she's, you know, two or three years old on Instagram, I'm always posting about my cats and my nephew because they just are so grounding when you look at them my niece grace she loves herself she doesn't have yet that understanding of like judgment she just is being she's you know screaming when she wants to scream yelling when she wants to yell, <laughs> laughing when she's laughing and she loves everything she loves her own poop right <laughs> like she yes and you think back to that and you know this this conditioning that we're not enough is learned quite early on. We're four years old and we're in JK and Johnny gets the B plus and we got the C minus. And what does that mean about me? (laughs) What does that mean that he got the sticker and the glorifying from the teacher and I got nothing? Like, what does that mean? Am I not enough here? And we pick up these subtle messages and also these very powerful overt messages we might've heard from our parents oh my gosh, you know, don't eat that, that's wrong. Or you're eating too much. Or, you know, we we get these sort of forms of conditioning that the self-awareness around that, what we've really picked up on in our life is really can be a game changer when you start to look back on it in a gentle, curious, and self-compassionate manner. That little innocent, younger part of yourself is still within you. So... I can imagine right now a lot of the women listening are like, oh my God, this is me. Like, this explains a lot in my life. Some of you may have to re-listen to it a second time. I know for me, when I was introduced to that same concept was via a book from Eckhart Tolle, which I know is a common love for both of us. I had to reread the book like five times. 
because I was literally disconnecting from the message because it was so me. So for people that are listening are like, this is me. How do we go about this identifying from our false selves and come back home to our true self? What's the process, if we can call it a process? My process might not be the most popular (laughs) because oftentimes we want sort of step by step by step, right? And again, like that's understandable because we're so desperate for wanting like a procedure or a path to to get to this end result of really healing, right? What we think is an end result, which is really more ongoing and lifelong. But I would say if the listeners can do one thing today is just introducing with themselves more quiet time. And I'll describe this quiet time because when you talk about identifying who, when you're identifying your sense of yourself in external things, be it your body image, be it in your friendships, be it in your job, your hobbies, maybe you're an athlete. The issue is all those things always change. Your job changes, you're, you might get laid off, or your body is always changing. We can't stop the aging process, right? Our friendships change, our relationships can and new ones get formed. So, of course, if our whole sense of ourself is really outside of ourself, is in those successes or in those desires or in those, even our mind, right, even our feelings, then, of course, we're going to feel anxious because they're always changing. We feel many feelings in a day, right? So it's very important that we gain this deeper sense of ourself. And the first thing that I ask a lot of my clients in the beginning is, how would you describe yourself? Hmm. And I find most people have a really hard time not going towards the, well, I am a teacher or I am a, we kind of are so identified with what we do and who we are externally in the world. So we need to learn the voice beyond the mind chatter and analyzing further and trying to intellectualize the healing only creates more confusion for people. In the long run, it might seem helpful to use our willpower and to structure a healing process. Every day I'm going to meditate mm-hmm. <laughs> or use this program to step by step. It might seem like the logical route to go. It's very often that people look at you funny when you say, being in quiet time can heal an eating disorder, right? I know. <laughs> that makes no sense. But it's through this process of unwinding and becoming the observer of those thoughts. We have 100,000 thoughts coming into our mind all day long, analyzing all day long. We need breaks. We need pausing time to be the observer of those thoughts. And when we strip away this battling of ourself, that these thoughts are who we are, and we accept that they're visitors in our mind, that you've never wanted to feel these feelings or think this way. No one ever wants these challenging thoughts. Nobody asks for that. It's conditioned, and 
it's actually a strange form of the way the mind is in some backwards way trying to protect you. When you think about you walk through a forest, for example, and you get bitten by a snake, the mind remembers that. The next time you walk through that forest, you're walking on eggshells. You're sensing, you're looking out for any leaf that moves, you're thinking it's the snake. Even if you live in somewhere like Ontario, where there's no poisonous snakes necessarily, you're still being prepared for that. So it's similar to our encounters with food. The mind will start to go, oh my gosh, what if you go overboard today? And and a good way to even start to notice and become the observer of your thoughts, because sometimes people will say, I don't have any of those thoughts, or they their awareness is so shut down that it's hard for them to identify the difference between their true inner essence and those kind of analytical critic thoughts. I often ask people, like, what are the first things you think when you wake up in the morning? And I was with this question too. And it, I was like, whoa, the first thing I think in the morning is, ah, what am I going to do today to get off the rail? Like, what am I going to choose or eat today? That's just going to, you know, like those were sort of when I was a teen, like the first thing that came in my mind was fear of failure in some way. And it's interesting how that can lead you just straight onto this pathway of autopilot and trying to grit and bear our day and willpower it through, which is never sustainable, just like we spoke about earlier. So yes, becoming more of this observer means some mind tra- new mind training, some new form of addressing our healing process that is a lot simpler. It's really bringing it back to the basics of, you know, the 1400s when we had time to pause and be with ourselves, And it doesn't, need to take a lot of our time and I remember myself being very trained in a a type type of family mm-hmm. <laughs> you and do and do that freaked me right out I was like what are you talking about I don't have time for that I'm in school I'm doing all these things <laughs> I don't have time to be with myself and I was quite frankly scared to be with myself because it meant feeling And that's a question that I have for you, because I can think of many of our students and clients in our program, and one of them, her name is Carol, her anxiety Mm -hmm. prevents her, she believes, to be quiet, because every time she's quiet, the anxiety is felt very highly. Yes. What would you say to those people where I've tried that, but it didn't work for me because it was worse? So what I say to that is, if you can, give yourself this important grace period. Many of us coming from a very A-type trained, anxiety trained family upbringing, (laughs) it's so out of our experience to start to quiet down that, yes, a lot of the pent up anxiety, the buildup of anxiety, the chronic anxiety, it's very new potentially for her to really sit with that. So just know that even if you do quiet time and a lot of anxiety is coming up for you, what you're doing is 
you're kind of allowing your body to start to unwind in even the most subtle ways, ways that you might not really understand in that moment, but might feel later on. The more you practice, the more you start to train your body that you're safe. And there's a couple of things I want to mention around this. So some people, like some of my clients, they need extra support. So they might need soothing music. They might need a calming environment. They might need someone holding their hand and being with them through it. They might need to find their own special way of soothing those feelings. But I would question with her if she has a belief system about anxiety with herself. Mm-hmm. Some people feel like anxiety is bad. Sometimes people have a belief that anxiety is a negative reflection of themselves, like something's wrong with them or that it's not okay and that they need to get rid of it now when they try to, the mind is wanting to just get rid of it. And the moment some form of acceptance can come into that quiet time, a preempting of the quiet time in that you're expecting there to be some anxiety, not in a an anxiety-provoking way, but just sort of an understanding with yourself that of course, of course I'm going to have anxiety. This is very new to me. This is very scary for me. And I don't know what to expect. And know that no quiet time is is bad. There's no right or wrong way of going about this quieting time. And I think I think you hit it right in the nail because, and this is going to be a huge commonality here, there is a lot of women that when they get to their 40s or shortly before, this anxiety is so debilitating or depression that they get medicated and they are told by the medical environment that anxiety is a problem or depression is a problem and that they're not in control of it. So they are medicated with it. Right. Yes. And there's a, a few little mantras I like to say you need to feel to heal. Feel to heal. I love that because it is like beyond the food. We need to feel to heal our relationship to food. And feeling comes from being in that quiet time. What else can people do beyond feel to heal? The only way out is through, (laughs) right? And what we resist persists. So although logically it seems like it makes sense to distract ourselves from feelings or it might feel better in the moment to avoid and numb our problems or our feelings, they tend to pop up in other areas of our life. Mm -hmm. And I hear so much from clients who have healed certain things in their life. Maybe it's an eating disorder, but then it's like that gopher game. That one's bonked down and another one comes up. Maybe it's workaholism and then we bonk that. (laughs) It kind of keeps coming up in different ways. Um, So uh, analogy that I like to use to help clients to remember them when they're in the feelings, because it is hard when we're swept up with a feeling, it, it can take over. And what I like to say to them is that they never last. They always expire, just like happiness and excitement. Like yeah. They always come back down. We hit a peak of a feeling, but they always come back down. It's sort of like if you think about a wave. Yes. When you're in the ocean and a wave is coming, 
and you see it, you know, it's coming. It's sort of like when you start to quiet down, you're like, oh, these discomforts. I can't even, I'm crawling in my skin. I can't even sit down. (laughs) You see the wave coming and you allow it to come. And let's say you resist it. You push up against the wave. What happens? It just gets higher and bigger. Yes. And it might even pull you under. You might start to drown you don't even know what's up from down. So you actually experience more suffering. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can accept that the wave is coming, you don't have control over this wave. It's there. You accept it and you go with it. You still flow with the wave at the peak, right? You still kind of float upwards, <laughs> but eventually the wave comes back down. And it's like this really interesting equation I like to use. Pain or anxiety plus unacceptance of the anxiety equals suffering. Pain plus acceptance of pain or anxiety plus acceptance of anxiety equals anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's funny? I gotta laugh because you're literally word for word reading slides out of module three of the academy. Wow. (laughs) unknowingly like we're so aligned in our thought process i have the exact words on a slide incredible (laughs) and we teach the model of the wave for our emotion and we learn to ride the wave that's one of the big cornerstone that's beautiful and that's so powerful because for so long i thought that the finish line would be healing my anxiety or And once you accept that there is no finish line, that these feelings are visitors, they're signs, they're messengers for us, then the moment you can actually transcend them, it doesn't mean that they're not there, but you don't have the accompanying of shame or guilt or pain that comes with unacceptance. And when I say like acceptance, I don't mean that you're accepting the situation or that it's fair or that it's justified. I mean, sometimes they're really painful events that we're having feelings about, right? But the acceptance is accepting that you're feeling your feelings, validating them and knowing that it's like any other sign we're needing ourselves, Comfort of ourselves, yes. Is there anything else or any other consideration or other things that people can do to feel, to heal, or to help them through this process? Yes. So with the quiet time, I really encourage people if they are finding it really hard. And by quiet time, what I'm referring to is taking some time every day to take breaks from analyzing. You're giving yourself permission not to analyze. In that moment, you're giving yourself full permission not to fix, try to create lists, tasks, to-dos, schedules. You're simply being the curious observer of where your mind is going, but in a non-analytical way. It's sort of like an unhinged way. Whereas we might be, if we're reflecting, really engaging with the thoughts. And I'll give you a little bit of another analogy. You know, I love my analogies. (laughs) But 
let's say you're driving in a car and you've got this like two-year-old beside you and they're screaming at you like go to the store I want to go to the store like I hate you you're the worst like you're not listening to me like I want to go now or something right and if we're engaging with it, it's like we're starting to be reactive. We're starting to yell back, oh my gosh, you're so annoying. Fine, I'll go there. We end up resigning and we go to the store and we just give in and we just, we feel hopeless and out of control. But imagine you're driving and you're hearing, you're expecting that two-year-old to come up. In the Not that our minds are like two-year-olds, but as an analogy purpose, you're expecting that the child is going to be yelling at you and or saying very confusing things to you, maybe even some nice things to you. Whatever it is doing, you're still driving forward. Your presence with it is more of an observing versus taking it and hooking into it. So this quiet time is really a mind training. It's a practice. It is something that takes time to fully sit in with. My first few quiet times were me literally shifting in my chair and saying, I can't do this and walking away. <laughs> yeah. And, and I can say in that word came an example of one of my patients long time ago, like about the time we met, I remember trying to do a just a quick breathing session with her. Mm. And I had a couch in my office, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And she went into convulsion. The mere fact of just closing her eyes and starting yeah. to breathe and feeling was so foreign to her that she literally started shaking. Yes. And I would say likely there's a trauma history yes. because of how the body is so connected, right? I did not know that back then. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, amazing of the person who you are naturally, you're yeah. healing person to be in the presence with so your presence with her through that you know animals in the wild when they get traumatized that's what they do they instantly convulse they scream they kick and then they move forward but yes us as humans we suppress for a very long time until it starts to come out and yet that might have been important for her in her process of unwinding so for sure it is like giving yourself the permission that this might take you some time to even sit in with and start with yourself. It might take time. And usually I say it takes like some people can take months of practice. It's like that morning autopilot I mentioned to you. If you can imagine an overgrown meadow and a house And you wake up every morning, you walk out the house, and there's that one path that's been stepped on so many times that it's created a pathway in the overgrown meadow. And it's just the autopilot. You just go right on that path and you go, right? You don't think twice, you're just on that route. It's the same as sort of how our mind works in the morning and throughout our day, sometimes creating a new pathway, a new form of being with yourself requires constant walking on that path in order to kind of build a strengthening pathway. So it may take time, but it's interesting. You can never really quite quantify. For some people, I've had clients where they've had these like really amazing, huge epiphanies in their quieting space. They didn't realize how critical their mind was at them. Like 
critiquing their mind was at them. They didn't realize all the chatter that was going on. I had one client where, you know, this was so hard to sit in with that she just started off with just simply pausing and Mm -hmm. simple pauses, like as she was walking to her car, stopping, looking at the car, what did she see? Or looking at the tree beside it and reflecting on the life of the tree. Very basic pauses of checking in. And it allows for the bigger picture to come through. It opens your awareness. It allows you to process emotions in the quiet time. And it helps to help you get to a place of feeling unstuck. Whenever one feels stuck in something, it's typically because they're not able to see the bigger picture in that moment, or they're feeling like they don't have a sense of their self. They feel disconnected to themselves. So they're stuck in a pattern or a mindset. So this inner silence, and it really, it's like we spoke about earlier, getting back to the basics of our human nature. It's, it's really human nature to take time to quiet ourselves down. If I can express it to yeah. people, for me, when I talk about what we do in our work here in the Beyond the Food community is we literally lead you back to yourself. And the, yeah. the reason why you're struggling with food is because you walked away from you. Yes. And bringing back to you will remove the behavioral issue with food or body image, whatever the thing is. So what you're expressing is basically just that coming back to ourselves. And not everyone is the same. Exactly. And I know for myself, I got really hung up on the words and Mm -hmm. the teaching. And I have to say, like, the best shifts that have happened for me haven't been from the knowledge or the intellectualizing or it's come from experiential. So really going through the challenging unwinding and and quieting down and being working through my fears around that. You know, I had fears like if I start to do quiet time, am I going to become less productive? Am I going to be not as successful? Am I not going to get everything I want to get done in a day? And actually it does the opposite. It gives you energy. It recharges you because you clear so much that's sitting on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. But I had to go through that. No one could really say all those things to me, reassure me, give me step by step on how you do the perfect quiet time. Like none of that I think is even helpful. Oftentimes I don't even go into this depth of description with my clients. I just sort of encourage them to find some some time for themselves and let that evolve. And it's for that reason. When you're unable to be with yourself, even that question alone, why can't I be with myself? It's very profound. Powerful, right? Mm-hmm. So we're coming up to the end here, and I want to make sure that we have enough time for this last question, because this is like, it's going to become very quickly one of those cornerstone episode of our production here in our podcast. So there's people listening right now that may not have the funds to work with someone like you, right? 
or join the program here, what other resources can people check out if they want to start this process on their own? Yes. Well, I think, you know, it's funny what first came to mind was Eckhart Tolle. I love Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. <laughs> I love Eckhart Tolle. His book on the power of now is is just, it can be a challenging, sometimes like the wording is hard. And like you said, you had to read it over mm-hmm. and over a couple of times over. But as you start to do more of your quieting time, the audio book I found really like re-listening to it just really for me is something I go back to often. The other resources that I really like sort of in my own sort of, I guess, processing of my critic thoughts was Kristen Neff, her book on self-compassion, because what she did for me was really normalized feelings, normalized my thoughts that I was not my thoughts and the compassion that you develop through her teachings around yourself. It was a very big game changer for me. The other thing that I would say are podcasts like your podcast. There's a lot of sort of other podcasts out there that I think you've even interviewed and spoken to, like Mm -hmm. Christy Harrison's Food Psych podcast, where she kind of challenges diet culture and sort of those sorts of things are great as well. And another book I really like is Radical Acceptance. So again, a theme here (laughs) on compassion, acceptance, forgiveness, right? (laughs) Some things that I would say that Viola gave to me and Amy gave to me were these important questions that if they were to go into their quiet time and as they move through taking these 10 minutes a day of just being with themselves, even if they just want to grab a tea and sit on their porch or sit in nature or something that is soothing for them, if they can just start there, you know, all of the reading, sometimes it brings in a lot more analyzing when you have the answers already inside of yourself. So although I give all these books, I think it was helpful for me at the beginning where I was really having a hard time on sort of coming out of my logic mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But really accessing your right brain, your creative element of your brain, your quiet time of your brain, the being part of your brain, the philosopher part of your brain is so untouched. It's so untapped into. The left brain is like the scientist. It's the A plus B equals C. It's the doer. It's the logic, the reasoning, the linearity. We are living in that brain. That's so dominant in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. And we need both. If you think about the plane that we've that's flying in the sky, like we needed the philosopher to like come up with even that idea that we could fly. But we also needed the scientist to come up with how to do it, right? So it's not that we don't need the logic side of our mind or the intellectual side of our mind, but we are craving and we're so desperate for that right brain activity. So whatever helps you get into that flow, be it writing or journaling or coloring or music, it's a self-responsibility. And I think that's where I'll end on this point of recommendations is just 
being honest with ourselves on our self-responsibility. When I was asked that question, I said, hygiene. <laughs> I said, eating well and exercising. <laughs> and she, Amy, my colleague, laughed at me. It was just like, okay. And what about the deeper responsibilities? <laughs> and I realized they're so much more profound. The deeper responsibilities are, you know, trusting yourself, believing in yourself, nurturing yourself, forgiving yourself accepting yourself, taking quiet time, listening to those gut feelings, honoring your needs, noticing your signs, eating disorders, eating problems, external behaviors aren't markers of your healing. You can still shift within you and your behaviors are still presenting. I love you. Oh, I love you. I thank you so much for this interview. You're going to touch a lot of women through your teaching here. And you're just beautiful in the way you're wording this with your tone of voice. I just love you. I love your work. And I know we're going to do some great things together in the future. But for now, unfortunately, people cannot work one-on-one with you unless they're in Ontario, Canada. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. As a social worker, yes. So for those that are in Ontario, Canada, you can look her up and I'll link to her website in the show notes. And I'm also going to link to all the other books she talked about as far as resources. But your teaching are amazing. So continue doing what you're doing, Christina, and our path are going to continue to cross. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Stephanie. There you have it, ladies. How was it? Isn't she cool and so calm voice? Every time I talk to her, like I come down like through the three notches and I come back in my body and I'm so calm. I love the woman. I have a quick exercise for you. Next time you have this ego attack, right? This other self that Christina talks about and it's bringing forth some challenging thoughts for you, some fear-based thought. Challenge to ask yourself, is this coming from a place of love or a place of fear? This is one of my most basic coaching questions that I use with all of our clients when they're struggling with a decision, thoughts, My comeback to them is always, is this coming from a place of love or a place of fear? So go out and practice that next time you have to make a decision or you have some challenging thought, and that's really going to reframe it for you. So remember to share this episode with other women. It's a very underground, underspoken topic of going beyond the food and making peace with food with our body. So I would really appreciate if you could share this episode to help us share the message. We're going to continue in the next podcast episode with Louise Swalter, and we're going to deep dive into the spiritual body and nothing to do with religion. And we're going to really explain that to you. So spirituality does not have anything to do with religion, but it's about tapping into your soul. So I love you, ladies, and I look forward to hang out with you in the next episode. 
I really am starting to see myself as perfect, just, just the way that I am. It's the first time in my life that I realized that my self-sabotage was really fear of failure. For me, that's huge because I would have normally sat there and ate the whole bag and I ate like two or three bites of it and threw it out. Because normally I would just sit there and shovel in the cake and go, oh, that was good, what's next? Sometimes I'll go into the kitchen, I'm gonna eat a banana and I stop and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not even hungry. Then I'll walk away from it and go on and it's over and done with. Do you eat for other reason than hunger? Maybe eating because you are stressed, frustrated, bored, or because you think you deserve it. I struggled with craving, overeating, and even binging on healthy food. No matter what diet I was on, keto, paleo, organic, whole food, nothing stopped it. And maybe you feel the same. Tired of dieting, over-exercising, and yet another fad program. Or maybe you're overeating and binging and wish you could just be a normal eater. I thought I was alone. I was sick and tired of being a victim of my food urges. Who wouldn't be? Do you feel stuck with your eating and body right now? I want you to know one thing. You are not alone. You aren't broken. If food hasn't been going the way you've planned, know this. It is not your fault. Sadly, most women keep repeating the cycle of yo-yo dieting because they rely on old strategy like restriction, discipline, and the worst one of all, willpower. Perhaps you believe in eating more intuitively and would love to trust yourself around food but are afraid of trying because Honestly, you just don't trust yourself or worse, you've tried before and you fail. So that's why I want to peel back the curtain and show you exactly how I changed my relationship to food and the one of my client going from overeating, binging and emotional eating to food freedom. And quite frankly, it is completely different from anything you've heard before. Claim Your Food Freedom is a 21-day journey to dissolve the hidden blocks, the emotional blocks that keep you stuck and finally stop sabotaging yourself with food. Claim Your Food Freedom is a four-step mapping process that will take you from where you are now to food freedom. You see, everything will change the moment you are willing to see beyond the food and understand why you eat. It's about transforming why and how you eat so what you eat becomes easy, natural, and peaceful. Health, well-being, self-confidence, satisfaction, and success are all byproduct of you looking beyond the food to unlock your food freedom. Plus, I'll coach you on specific roadblock that may get in the way from you being free from food. Probably the things that made you fail before. The constant hate on your body, the all or nothing attitude, aka perfectionism, fear of failure or even shame. And lastly, time management. If you are ready to step into a new version of yourself, 
that eat normally and is at peace with food and maybe even your body, head over to www.claimyourfoodfreedom.com and I'll see you on the other side.